0: there and welcome back to the film score podcast
1: today my guest is emily Levynes farouche who first came onto my radar with her score for the indie horror film censor and since then i've noticed her do a really wide array of films and music genres but we primarily talk about her score for the relatively new romance fantasy supernatural film All of Us Strangers. And I'll say the music style wasn't what I really expected, especially when I first started watching the film. And it was one that planted something deep inside where... When I listened to it again a few weeks later, ahead of this interview, I was struck by the most intense wave of melancholy. It really felt like it came out of nowhere. So we primarily talk about this score, and as always, we go on to other tangents, including talking about the reuse of film music in a film like May December and discussing music in horror films and the great latitude that those films especially on the more independent side of things can give you of course you can find out more about her on her website or social media and you can do the same for me and the BAFTAs are in a few hours and even if you're not an awards person and I'd say I'm not, it's a cool time to see some film music recognized. And I did an article and a short episode on that, so seek those out if you're interested. But that's in the future. Right now, we've got this interview, so sit back and enjoy.
0: Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. How have you been?
2: Um, Honestly, I'm just finishing having a cold. (laughs) But otherwise, you know, now my most recent film is both out in the U.S. and where I live in the U.K., and it's just been heartwarming and mind blowing the reaction to the film. So I'm really, really happy.
0: Yeah, it's it's been well, it's it's one of those where I think it premiered at Telluride, maybe in I don't know July of last year, and so I've I've seen so many things about it, and I hate that about the festival circuit because it's <laughs> it's this really prolonged tease and so I'm glad that it's finally out and it was for me really great to see in theaters especially near the end of the film hearing so many people reacting really viscerally to it.
2: Yeah I remember I went to Telluride for the premiere which is actually the most amazing festival I've ever been to it's just Disneyland for filmmaker it's just fantastic But yeah, even there where I saw it for, for the first time with an audience is, you know, you're so focused the first time you watch a film that you've worked on. You think about all the technical elements and like, how is this sounding? Is this vibration down to the sound of the space, which is not really a cinema? Or did I did something wrong in the mix, et cetera, et cetera. And then what was really crazy for me is that I got taken out of this overthinking things because all of a sudden everyone started sobbing and like repressing tears. And it was was just that moment where I snapped out of being critical of my work and just looked around and realized that it was connecting with the audience. And I think that was really needed because it reminded me what the meaning of the film is. And the fact that what attracted me to the project at the start was also the reason why everyone was reacting. So yeah I think it's definitely a communal cathartic experience and I mean the cinematography just looks incredible on the screen as well so you might as well treat yourself.
0: And I think those are all it saddens me seeing so much push towards things strictly being streamed watching it in your Mm -hmm. home and even if you have a fantastic setup just watching it by yourself or with one other person is such a a different experience and you miss so many things like that. Or if you're watching a comedy and having 50 other people laughing or an action film and everyone's on the edge of their seat cheering for the, the main character shooting bad guys and all that. And it's that film really struck me as showcasing how, how, much more impactful the experience can be
2: yeah and it's surprising actually because it's not necessarily it's such a a delicate and intimate film that you wouldn't expect the fact that seeing it with other people is actually making it that much more impactful but I think it's maybe because it's on the subject of loneliness and when you're thinking about watching a film about being lonely and you're lonely you're alone that might be a lot but if you're watching it with other people, maybe the the message at the end of the film is Mm. sinks in even more because you are realizing that you're not alone with those feelings and you're not alone with responding to that story and other people in the room are equally affected by it. And I think that might be like, oh, wait, maybe if I too opened up and took a chance on someone, maybe they're actually just like me inside. I do hope people are going to start embracing the communal experience of film because, yeah, it is it is something pretty, pretty magical. And as human, we do need to keep those spaces where we do things uh, communally and experience emotion, experience stories together. So I do hope people are going to start embracing cinema even more.
0: Yeah. And the flip side is I saw a quote from like Netflix's head of content or something about how they want to keep things out of the theater and just Mm. on Netflix. And I I read that and was like, no, this is not the direction we need to be going.
2: But, you know, like money talks. If people go to the cinema, they'll, as capitalist society, our money is going to have a huge impact in shaping where things are going. If we all go to the theater and watch the films in the movie theater, and that's the best thing that can happen to a film is a theatrical release. Then streamers won't have a choice; they'll just have to do theatrical release. So, go to the cinema and support <laughs> exactly. <this thing>. Yes.
0: <laughs> uh, but on the subject of like of loneliness and experiencing it alone, earlier this morning I was listening to your score, and I don't know what happened. Just near the end, I just got like so utterly sad during it. It was just such a melancholic experience and obviously the the film itself deals both with that but also like you mentioned the catharsis and having sort of second chances with certain things. So the music has this sort of duality where there are moments where it's warm, it's welcoming, there's a bit of an embrace and then there's also this melancholy throughout too. How are you striking that balance because they are really these two, in many ways, polar emotions or experiences?
2: I think this one was mostly a a matter of really tuning in with the performances and mirroring a lot of what Andrew Scott was doing. If you listen to the score without having seen the film, I think it's more difficult to understand what it's doing because it's not a showy score. It's not like a a score for the sake of writing music. It's just functions. And he's created for the film and for that story. So it was very important to really connect with what Adam is is feeling and just trying to stay really truthful to that, which means that I can't go too big because the performance is subtle and it would feel wrong. And then remembering both who the character is, but also the fact that Andrew Haig, the director, wanted to have a story that is not trying to pretend everything is okay or that it's easy not trying to sugarcoat anything but still making us feel like if we do this process if we confront those things on the other side we can come out feeling part of something feeling at ease with who we are and our past so I think it's just trying to see the music as an arch of where it starts and where it ends And then trying to understand what what each scene meant and how Adam was feeling in each of those themes and and trying to mirror that with the music without telling the audience necessarily how to feel. So Mm. on a scene like the diner scene, you know, the goodbye scene, it was quite important to, especially at the start of the queue, I I keep quite behind, like I leave a lot of space and... I think it's just because what's happening on screen is really powerful, but also so surreal and so openly emotional. That if I had had music that was also very evidently emotional, very traditionally emotional, I think it would have felt manipulative, or mm-hmm. maybe people would not have had an occasion to react before the music tells them, No, but you're supposed to feel sad now. So, yeah, the balance I think was there because I. Try to both stay with Adam and kind of understand what sh- what each scene meant and how I could mirror that
0: and talking about the idea of manipulation and that's mm. it's a criticism of the existence of film music going you know back a hundred years let's say are there times where whether in this film or more broadly that it seems more appropriate to push further be more obvious in how you're directing the audience?
2: I think it's not necessarily a manipulation in the sense of... I was thinking, I can't actually remember why I was thinking about that, but I was uh, thinking about how you have different approach to filmmakings. when one is kind of empathy and one is reaction. So you have some filmmakers that get you to a certain emotional space by having an empathy for the character and making you feel related to the character, making you feel like you and them are the same person in a sense. But then you also have other filmmakers that are going to create a situation or a story or a scene that is causing a reaction and you still have the feeling that they're hoping you're going to get, but you're not going to get it by relating to the character. You're just going to get it because the situation you're confronted with should in a normal human being create a specific emotion or reaction or feeling so like horror does it in a sense because it's kind of grossing you out or like it just shocks you and then you have this kind of back and forth rather than necessarily making you empathize with anyone it is i, I think the the most interesting way in order to like manipulate and big air quote The audience, I would be more interested in using music in a way that is generating a reaction where you're like, if I put this type of music to this type of scene, I'm likely to get this result rather than being like, oh, I want to make people very sad. Therefore, let's play some very sad music. You can see it sometimes in comedy or like something. I mean, May, December has some interesting way of doing this where the very famous hot dog scene it's yeah. is just using that big contrast and that contrast causes a sense of humor even though the music doesn't tell you it's funny it's just the reaction that it causes is mm. hilarious and i find that it is a form of manipulation but i think it's a lot smarter than just like making the emotion you want people to feel but like time 10 million hoping that some of it will rub off the audience but I I wouldn't say I've had a film where I've necessarily had the opportunity to explore this sense of reaction versus empathy but yeah it is a thing I've been thinking about recently and
0: <laughs> not, and not to take us off of onto too much of a tangent, but yeah, I, I think it was that scene in particular, and the film did overall. But the hot dog scene caused some controversy on how it was using the go-between, yes, Michel Legrand's score. Yeah, did you have any thoughts on like the use of a older classic score like that versus generating something original?
2: The reality is, even if you're not directly using existing music, the language of film music has been shaped over the past century and comes from program music, ballet music, opera and stuff. So even if you're not directly quoting, musically quoting an existing score, you are. Like the fact that people associate minor melodies with sadness, etc., etc. There is a language and there are expectations. And I thought it was quite interesting, actually, to just go full-on and just using the signifier of that music and just boom you're not trying to do a pastiche you just use it just go for it which i think is is funny and is is clever and is done intentionally rather than in a lazy way i wouldn't say i don't think it's appropriate on every film i think Mm. you have to do it for a very specific purpose but in this case i thought i thought it worked pretty well it was pretty fun (laughs)
0: well and and it's a good point because You hear, for instance, some of John Williams' scores or themes, and then you listen to music by, like, say, Holst, and you go, oh, okay, there are very explicit similarities here. And it's that's just kind of how film music or any music or other art is done. Nothing's being made in a vacuum. It's all building and influence, whether conscious or unconscious, I suppose.
2: And I think that's one of the beauty of like scoring comedies or things like that is I think really good comedy composer have such an understanding. I'm not one of those, by the way. I'm <laughs> like I don't know if I could do a comedy but uh, like a proper comedy. But I think the smartest scored comedy is people who really understand contrast, who really understand just opposition. And the only way you can get that is if you are so knowledgeable about what people associate with a specific type of music and really understand, yeah, music as a signifier and, and all that. And the reality is we have culturally a certain reaction to certain type of music. We associate them with meaning and we all use it to a certain extent. You know, I know that when I do too many modulation in minor and in music to try to make it more dynamic on the musician point of view I know often what's going to happen is people are like it's a bit too melancholy can you make it more clearly major and that's just because we associate those things that way it's not scientifically nonsense this culture where minor is happy and major is sad but in western culture music has this specific meaning and I think the job of a composer is to understand that meaning and know how much you can subvert it and how much you can lean on to it
0: And how much in your experience does that cultural understanding or or the way that specific things change in in a culture, like, for instance, growing up in France and then now being based in the UK, and obviously those are two countries that are quite close and yet have, in many ways, different cultural norms?
2: I mean, I can definitely see in my appreciation of music and my appreciation of orchestration I can you know like there's absolutely zero doubt of the influence of late 19th century early 20th century French composer like I'd be dishonest if I pretended otherwise (laughs) (laughs) it's definitely part of my musical DNA but I don't know I mean it, it is an interesting thing because there's enough closeness that I can navigate the British culture I think The part I appreciate the most in British culture is also the reason why I moved here is I think punk come from England, even though the queen is also, well, the king now is also English. They have punk. And I think you can see that, especially in like first couple of feature film for a, a director, there is still this desire for rebellion and pushing the envelope in terms of style, in terms of narrative. And I still find that like very exciting and lovely to see but yeah musically it, it is interesting because i have been here for so long but i wouldn't say i'm nearly as knowledgeable or i react very well to british pop or experimental music but in terms of classical i'm not going to lie i feel like a lot of the british composers are maybe less studied in france <laughs> so it's a bit of a, a blind spot for me and maybe i ought to to revisit that uh, language a little bit more
0: i would rather revisit the uh... British punk scene instead. but Yeah,
2: I mean, they have some lovely pieces. It's just, yeah, I need to give it a go, I think, at some point. I've been here for a long time, so I should know a bit more about British classical music.
0: And so for things like that, how much is the music of the place that you're in or of the country in which the film is based or its production companies? or How much mm. a, of that is affecting your approach to a, a particular score?
2: Um I haven't been really in a position yet where I had to do I think I prefer when when there's like a really strong sense of time and place not necessarily time in terms of time period but like I I did a film called Rocks and a lot of it is done around like teenage girls in East London at a specific time and there's a lot of songs it's a very small amount of original score and a lot of songs but I f- I thought it made complete sense because I think a lot of the time, rather than trying to be pastiche or half heartedly involve some music from that area, just get a few licensed tracks that are very traditional, very real, or the type of pop track or R&B track the girls would be listening to. Mm. I prefer when my job is more about creating a music that feels authentic to the characters without me trying to explain to the audience where we are. Which obviously in some cases is going to mean that for something like living, I'm not going to go too moderns. We pretty much didn't have any effect on the instrument because Williams, that wouldn't be the type of thing that would be true to him. But I would take the approach always to try to stay true to the characters rather than to try to like set the scene in 70s Baghdad or something like I think it's just just use this amazing musician from all those places. Use one of their tracks. It'll do much better job than I do. <laughs> well,
0: is that something that came up doing All of Us Strangers? Because there are obviously these moments where, not to say we're in a different time, but that time becomes very fuzzy, or, or where we as the viewer are located sort of yeah. blurs. And you have licensed tracks during those, and then you have the through line of Andrew Scott's character throughout.
2: But that was exactly that. I think the music had to have the same role. If you think about it, like it can be an experience that's very disjunctive. You jump around to like mm-hmm. storylines that are not linked to one another. Time period, you're not clear, are we time traveling? Are we not? So, you know, if the music was also changing dramatically from each storyline, it would reinforce this sense of separation and and I think that's what we were trying to do. We wanted the music to kind of tie everything together and help really focus Andrew Scott's character as our guide through all this and, and the kind of center stage of everything. So yeah, we, we wanted things to stay quite coherent. Obviously, you have moments where we venture into slightly different genre, but we're still using sounds that have been used, you know, the same synth. It's just different programming or I, I use them slightly differently. The orchestration is the same throughout the film just because basically it's supposed to be just like Andrew Scott's performance. It is supposed to feel like a supporting, guiding force for the audience to follow what's going on.
0: Both the, the palette itself and the styles that you're approaching musically, mm-hmm. are those things that you had settled on Early on, or were there other ideas and iterations floating around before you landed on those?
2: I mean, for this one, it's one of the films where I did a suite. So I wrote about seven minutes of ideas and sent that to Andrew Haig. And then he, you know, went through them with the editor, Janet and Albert, to try a few things in the film. And then we thought, okay, so this this sound works, this sound doesn't quite work, can we push this a bit further in that direction? Uh, But yeah, I think it was very important to to find the sound palette for the film because they'd been editing for a while Mm -hmm. and they'd had temp and they tried different temp. So I think more than finding what the melody should be or anything, the struggle that they were having is to just find the right amount between more emotive sounds and more synthetic sounds so how do you have something that still has this modernity that still kind of links back to synthesizer because again like the 80s track although that wasn't we never really actively tried to match the 80s track but it did feel like having some synth would would help bringing a coherence between all the music but yeah that was the main target finding the balance between some electronic elements and still something that wouldn't feel too mechanical not cold not even more alienating like you're talking about a man who is already lonely is already like closing his door to any kind of person who would be a part of his life and yeah it was really important that the music always made it clear that behind this loneliness there was a humanity well if you have a so yeah it was it was you know, trying things. Like sometimes you go full acoustic and it feels cheesy. And sometimes you go full electronic and it's just like, this feels so alienated. This feels so cold. So we just worked out a base of sound, a general mood for the score. And then, yeah, from cue to cue, developing the music itself. Interesting.
0: And we're right near uh, the half hour. We've made it through without any sneezes. (laughs) One... Completely unrelated to basically everything we've been talking about, but it's mm-hmm. it's something that I've been wondering for quite a while. The first time I became familiar with you and your music was, and I can't remember the site, but that hosted the single from your score for Censor. Oh, yeah. And I remember their write-up compared some of the, the sound in that track and the score overall to John Carpenter. And <sighs> I see that comparison thrown around often when you when things are more synthy, electronic. Yes. And so I, I wanted to see what your thoughts were on that comparison.
2: I mean, for, for Sansa, it was definitely accurate. Although that Sansa, because, again, it's like a film where we are set in the 80s. It is about the moral panic of the video nasties in the UK. And we didn't want to go too pastiche, mm-hmm. we didn't want to have something that was more interested in confirming what was already very clear on screen, which is we're in the 80s, and focusing slightly more on the trauma the lead character is going through. But I remember sending a suite, like uh, eight minutes of music, I think, from a script, I hadn't seen any footage. And we had all the kind of voice work, the kind of dream and trauma land, like that was... Got it really early on, but then I remember Prano being like, Can you make something that's actually a little bit more retro, you know, a bit more giallo? And you know, one of my Mm. favorite score of all time is Goblin's Suspiria, which I have on vinyl, which I've been listening to like (laughs) all my life. And yeah, so it's like, Sure thing, I can absolutely make you a proper banging early 80s Italo, like you know, giallo style score kind of moment. And then, you know, as the lead character spirals out in her own delusion as the film evolves, yeah, we start incorporating more and more elements of film scores from the 80s because that's what she would have been looking, watching in her film. And both Prano and I, like, when we think about 80s film, John Carpenter is like at the top of our list. So it was always going to be a film where I could also show my appreciation for. For those composers and you know to me it's just a reflection of how horror films especially the less commercial ones have always been a place where you can experiment so much more in the score than in anything and it can be because the director has every right to write his own scores and make weird like really minimal scene yeah. score or it can be Bobby Crilly going completely beautiful in in <laughs> Midsummer and just writing the most beautiful chamber suites to a man in a bear costume burning to death. Like, it's just it's just a place of experimentation. And I was really, really thrilled to work on a film with a director who has such a great understanding of horror and not just, like, how scary can we make it, but what does it mean to us as an audience?
0: I love that. And it's, it's something <laughs> I hear so often about horror of, like, many times giving a composer the opportunity to do something that they, I mean, how often do you get to channel your inner goblin?
2: Ah, well, (laughs) maybe more often than you (laughs) think. Maybe every time I'm in the shower, I'm making all this kind of barbarian sound studio, uh, Italian sound effect (laughs) of witches.
0: (laughs) Love it. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that after this, your cold goes away, me
2: too <laughs> <laughs> it was lovely to, yeah, it was a really enjoyable conversation, and I'm glad my brain kept switch on for the duration, so <laughs> I was a bit scared that I was gonna become incoherent halfway through so no i very i good. think
0: I think you <laughs> nailed it everything was coherent,
2: okay, I'm very relieved. <laughs>